everyone. Um, I'm, I'm going to stand right here for a minute and then I may wander over um, to the middle of the room. So I just wanted to um, say just a little bit um, more about my background. So I'm a non-traditional epidemiologist because I trained um, in a center where um, general medicine docs with public health training and PhDs work together. So from the beginning, um, I've had more of, I'd say, an applied focus and um, a clinical focus um, to my career. What I'm going to show you today is the, um, the intervention research that I've been doing um, pretty much for the past 15 years. This is um, two series of studies uh, that I did in Baltimore. Um, while I was at Johns Hopkins in um, community clinics. So I just wanted to say that since I've come to Columbia, which has been a little over two years now, I haven't been as connected with the clinical community. So um, I really want to um, open the door for collaborations to, um, to, do, to extend more of this work to the New York setting. Okay, so I'm sure you're all very, very familiar with um, the uh, racial disparities in um, diabetes, because this has been well documented for a long time. Um, you know, there are disparities in the prevalence and incidence of diabetes, um, in healthcare insurance coverage and utilization, and in diabetes-related complications. And I'm just going to show you a couple of slides just so you can um, get an idea of the magnitude of these disparities. So this is the age-adjusted incidence of diagnosed diabetes. Um, this is 1997 to 2004. These are numbers uh, from CDC surveillance system. Um, and as you can see, um, on top here, you look at an incidence rate of um, 9 per thousand um, in blacks, um, Hispanics following, um, and then um, whites following. All um, incidence rates are increasing over time in these um, continue to increase even after um, in more recent years. This is the age-specific age prevalence of diagnosed diabetes by race and ethnicity and sex. Um, these are numbers from 2005. Um, I'm presenting today on African Americans. So if you compare rates for um, example for black males compared to white males, um, you can see for all ages um, the, the prevalence of diabetes increases with age, but if you look at black men compared to white men, um, you see much higher prevalences and um, prevalence rates. And then, of course, with black women, um, you see rates um, in the older ages almost as high as um, 30% compared to white women here, um, which are 15% or less. Fast forward to more recent data, um, just to show you how these numbers are getting worse. So at the older ages, I was showing you prevalence rates near 30%. They're now um, over 30% um, for, uh, well, I said for um, black women, um, looking at white women also increasing. One of the interesting um, things about the disparities in men is you see this huge disparity um, in the prevalence of diabetes compared to black men and white, white men, um, but you don't see the disparity as much in obesity. So a lot of the um, disparity in black women is attributed to um, obesity, but that's not the case um, for, for black men. So that's, that's been a, um, an interesting question um, over the course of my career as to why that's so. Okay, this is just a study um, to show um, kind of the work that I was doing when I was at CDC. Um, you are probably familiar with the behavioral risk factor surveillance system. 
um, it's a telephone-based survey done in all the states um, in the U.S. to track um, the prevalence of our risk factors. I was interested in looking at the healthcare experience, I called it, um, looking at coverage, utilization, um, satisfaction um, of U.S. adults with diabetes. So I was looking at um, coverage. So if you look at the people, the percentage of people without healthcare coverage, um, you see, not surprisingly, that non-Hispanic Blacks and Hispanics are more likely without coverage. Um, and if you look at those reported costs as a barrier to, to healthcare utilization, again, you see non-Hispanic Blacks and Hispanics reporting that cost um, is a barrier. So this is um, just an example of some of the type of work that I was doing um, with national data um, at CDC. Um, if you look at complications, um, I'm sure you all are very familiar, these are complications compared to white groups. So if you look at nephropathy, retinopathy, low extremity amputation, um, for blacks you see um, greater risk disparities um, in all of those. And just to give you an example, um, this is the age-adjusted incidence of end-stage renal disease. Um, and this is by race, ethnicity, and sex um, over time. And as you can see, um, if you look at the blue, those are numbers for uh, black males and black females. These rates are astronomical. The rates of ESRD are you know, four to five times um, higher, in, uh, particularly for black men. And same with, um, with hospital discharge for um, amputation, um, which is one of the ways that we have to measure amputation. Um, see much higher rates for blacks. <coughs> Okay, so I've, you know, these, these type of disparities have been known for a long time. I've spent my career trying to understand the different causes of these disparities. Um, right now, we're working on a um, position statement for the Endocrine Society. They are going to put out a position statement on racial disparities. I'm working with colleagues there. Um, and just trying to understand what actually contributes to these. And this was an article that was... Um, put out by our former Surgeon General on the role of endocrinologists. I thought this was really relevant in this setting. Um, what can endocrinologists do to eliminate health disparities? Um, and it goes through some of the historical um, types of things that have happened in this country um, to bring attention to the issue of disparities. I'll just point to a couple. Um, I think the major um, issue was when the IOM report um, came out in 2003 that um, uh, the, uh, the unequal treatment report that discussed how um, it's not just the patients and, and their behavior, that there, there are issues within the clinical encounter, um, biases and so forth that could also contribute to disparities. So it gave us a, a, a broader sense of what could be contributing. Um, since then, the um, AHRQ has had to um, implement national health care uh, disparities reports every year where we monitor whether our um, disparities are decreasing, increasing, not changing. Um, and then the WHO now has a commission on um, social determinants of health. I know they met last year, I think, um, in Brazil. So there's been a long history, I guess over the last you know, 20, 20 years or more, um, in bringing more attention to this problem. And this is just a framework um, looking at the different, 
causes, potential causes of these disparities. And this is one of many of these complex um, models that talk about the many different determinants. So of course you have the um, some of the biological responses and um, some of the things at the individual level. Um, uh, I'm sure there may be some basic scientists in the audience um, who look more um, here in this pathway. Um, I'm looking more at the social and physical con context and um, how things like neighborhood and um, uh, social support and, and so forth, how they contribute to disparities. Um, and then, you know, I have colleagues who are working in social sciences, sciences who look at kind of the fundamental causes, so how poverty and, and those types of things are contributing. Okay, when you think specifically to the healthcare um, encounter, um, there could be problems related to providers, um, language, cultural differences, um, you know, mistrust of Western medicine, so forth. Um, problems related to the system, location, time blocks, appropriateness of materials, um, and problems related to the patient. So their education level, literacy, um, socioeconomic status, um, and cultural competency. And I'm going to show you um, with my intervention study how we're trying to deal with um, those different problems at multiple levels. Okay, so my research program is um, combining the observational, because I am an epidemiologist, um, and the intervention research to address the common theme of reducing racial disparities um, in diabetes and its complications and improving diabetes care for African Americans. So I look at the contributing factors. I look at the social um, and environmental, so everything from socioeconomic status to neighborhoods um, to other non-financial things. So um, are people satisfied with their care? Does that if they're satisfied, do that, does that um, mean they can more often attend preventive care services? Um, what about the patient-physician interaction? Um, one of my mentors is Lisa Cooper, and she's been looking at things like um, race concordance of providers and patients and how that um, influences outcomes. And then I'm also interested in um, culture. So for African Americans, um, cultural issues are much harder to, to define because there's not common language, there's been this history of um, um, you know, strong African values and European values mixed because of slavery and not having a lot of common cultural ties. So trying to understand what does this mean? And when we do these intervention studies, either in diabetes or um, in obesity, and we say it's culturally tailored, what does that actually mean um, for those studies? So this is broad, um, and this is what I'm doing. I'm talking in Epi next week, and so I'm going to talk about this piece in Epi. Um, um, just to give you a sense of, of that type of work that I do. So you know, we can look at things like um, cultural norms, built environments, um, poverty, the local food environment, whether people have access to the foods that we um, are asking them to to eat um, psychosocial hazards and stress. How all of those impact the health behaviors that everybody's interested in, um, the energy input and expenditure. Um, I have colleagues, and probably a lot of you are looking at this um, piece of it and looking at things like the HPA access and um, um, met metabolism and looking at genes, and all of that contributes to um, this that we're all interested in, and changes in weight. 
um, and diabetes status. So I've done a couple of um, different neighborhood studies, a couple in the built environment. Um, I'm have an ancillary study to look at the Look Ahead trial. Most of you probably know about Look Ahead. It's a uh, um, weight loss study in people with diabetes, um, and they have long-term follow-up to see if um, long-term weight loss can reduce cardiovascular events. I have an ancillary study attached to that, which looks at neighborhood, and presumably people with better neighborhood environments would do better in the actual intervention because it's not a supervised intervention. So, you know, they do get lots of help at PhD level interventionists, um, but presumably if you have more in your environment, you'll do even better and you'll be able to use access to, um, to more things in your environment. I'm sorry. And then um, I've also looked at the perception of neighborhood environment um, and how that impacts diabetes outcomes. So, um, so I'm going to talk about all of that in Epi next week, so if any of you are interested, um, next Friday. Um, but today I want to talk about the intervention. Um, so brief background. So we know African Americans suffer disproportionately. We know that um, parameters, you know, glucose, blood, blood pressure, cholesterol are modifiable. Um, there are still, um, when we started the study, there were really few, but there's um, even now a few culturally tailored interventions for this population. Um, and we were interested in a combined clinic and community approach to improving care. In our phase one, we saw moderate improvements um, in A1C limits of blood pressure. Um, this is phase one, published in 2003. Um, we were looking, I'll, I'll talk more about the design, but we were looking at um, nurse case manager interventions compared to community health worker interventions and a combined nurse case manager community health worker. Um, and this is looking at the effective interventions in 24 months. Um, so a decent change in A1C um, for the, the individual groups, but this combined group had um, a pretty good, about a um, 0.8 decline in A1C. Um, again, this combined group showed um, good changes in triglycerides and in diastolic blood pressure. So this was phase one, um, and so we decided to do a larger study to follow up on the results that we, um, that we found in phase one. So um, you all, I'm sure, are aware of the landmark studies, DCCT, UKPS, um, that showed substantial reduction in complications with tight control clinical parameters, but the catch is that getting to this tight control involves a lot of coordination from the patients, providers, and the system. So given our results from phase one, um, given that we wanted to do something larger scale, um, we uh, did a larger study um, called Project Sugar 2, very original, <laughs> Project Sugar 1, Project Sugar 2. Um, and here, we were just interested in whether a combined intervention, so a nurse case manager and a community health worker team intervention, um, could improve metabolic control. So these were the outcomes that we looked at in phase one. Um, we wanted to see if it could improve health behaviors and quality of life. And then we added this component of reducing the risk of health events, so ER visits um, and hospitalizations. Could we keep people out of the hospital? Um, and could we offset costs by savings related to decreased utilization? Feel free to stop me anytime through this and, and ask questions. Okay, so this was NIH funded and um, NIDDK 
funded randomized trial, two parallel arms. Um, we were set within six primary care clinics in Baltimore City. Um, so these were Hopkins-affiliated um, community clinics around Baltimore. In, um, in uh, Maryland, Medicaid is in managed care. So um, in, in managed care, we were able to get private insurance, Medicaid, um, Medicare, um, everyone. We have 542 um, African Americans, greater than 25 years old, all had type 2 diabetes. We looked at two intervention arms, um, and I already told you the outcomes. So this is basically how we got people. We screened them using administrative data. So, you know, um, a download of people with ICD-9 for diabetes, um, African Americans, and that gave us um, about 2,400 people. Um, and then we screened them, we called them and screened them by phone. Um, 955 were eligible, and then, you know, we had some people who didn't participate, um, some people that we um, couldn't contact, and then some people who were just ineligible. And we did a survey of them to see how they were comparable to the people that we had in our study. I'm not going to talk about that. Um, but in our study, we were able to randomize 542 people, which is, is a lot of people. Now, we, our target was actually 800 when we started this. Um, I don't know if you remember, it was a long time ago that um, Hopkins had a shutdown. They had a research-related death that was unrelated to anything that we were doing. And that completely um, influenced our recruitment. So we had, you know, probably 400 people before that happened, and we were on our track to get 800. Um, so we ended up with 500, which is still one of the largest studies, um, you know, in this type of population. Okay, so this is about 50% of the eligible, and um, we randomized them to a minimal phone intervention, um, and I'm going to talk about what that entailed, to an intensive intervention, and then we looked at outcomes at 24 and actually 36 months. <coughs> so... Um, uh, data collection, they attended a baseline um, and follow-up interviews where we got um, data collected on all these parameters. We got informed consent. Um, and then we were able to get their ER visits and hospitalizations from administrative claims and counter data, encounter data. Um, analyses were done by attention to treat. We looked at the clinical parameters and health behaviors. So we looked at the change from baseline to follow-up. The difference between the two intervention groups um, use GEE and logistic regression for adjustment. And then for ER visits, we looked at person years censoring for death, and our um, point estimate was rate ratios using Poisson regression. Okay. I'll tell you a little more about the intervention. So um, the minimal intervention was done over the phone. Um, the interventionists were community, well, we call a lay health, health worker, um, high school graduate from the community, um, and she did the intervention over the telephone. So it was just a basic intervention, um, calling the participant, asking them if they had their preventive screening. So, you know, the, the A1C test, cholesterol test, so forth, have you been to your doctor? Um, then the interventionists would record that and send a written note to the primary care doc. So um, these participants, just to step back for a minute, were recruited from their home primary care clinics. So 
the doctors um, were, I mean, they weren't actively involved in the intervention, but things were fed back to them, and, and the interventions, interventionists had access to them to be able to talk to them if there was a problem with the patient. Um, they got a quarterly newsletter, um, and as I said, the, the feedback um, to the provider in written form. Um, the intensive intervention was um, very different. So it had the services of a nurse. The nurse would see the patient in a clinic. Um, they would have algorithms and action plans that I'll talk about um, based on participants' clinical parameters or um, medical problems or so forth. Um, they had one clinic visit per year, um, and they would feedback to the provider, either in written form or if it was an emergency, they would email a page, um, the doc. And the community health workers, so they worked in a team with one nurse and on average four community health workers for this panel of like 200, 269 patients. The community health workers were lay health workers, so they were high school grads from the community. They worked, they went to the actual participants' homes and worked with them in the homes or, or did community activities with them. Um, they also used algorithms and intervention action plans. Um, they had at least three home visits, well, on average, three home visits yearly. Um, and they had provider feedback. Now, this, this was, the community health workers were nurse supervised, so they worked as a team. To, for one patient, the nurse would feed back things to the doc if necessary. Um, so I just want to point out too that these were trying to combine two very different models. So the medical model um, and the nurse case management model that's very popular um, in, in uh, managed care now with more of a social work and public health um, model. So you know the idea is that these community health workers would alleviate some of the white coat barrier, that they would um, work with families, work with participants, work on um, things like health education, um, and so they would have very different roles with the patient. Any questions about that? Okay, this is just another example. I just want to point out um, some of a little more of the details. So um, intensive intervention, you know, on average, um, three to four people. Um, they, they had all these clinical triggers. They had clinic visits, patient care, home visits, community events, telephone calls, mailings, feedback to the primary care physician. And on average, the intervention went for 30 months. Oh, let me mention too, we had this minimal intervention because during our first phase, we had usual care. And so we felt that you know, we wanted to offer something for the, the control group. Um, and so this minimal intervention was actually designed to be um, kind of online with what some of the disease management companies are doing. So not, you know, not really individual level case management or so forth, but more, you know, something that was educational. And it's funny because I'll talk about trying to translate this um, to different settings and, and at the end, but um, the, the people in managed care are actually interested in this piece because it's low cost, you know, low effort. Um, so trying to find ways that can balance, um, you know, their, their cost and their needs. Okay, so the nurse had an initial assessment where um, she did things like medical histories, um, talked about diabetes knowledge, 
um, assessed symptoms, um, things like depression. So she was really there to deal with the medical issues and, um, um, and to follow up on those. The community health workers um, got social history. They talked about things like attitudes toward diabetes, um, life priorities, um, self-care self behaviors, and so forth. So as you can see, very different um, aspects of the community health workers focused on. Okay, so the algorithms were um, published guidelines, um, professional recommendations. They address all the traditional areas of diabetes care, um, but they also address some of the non-traditional issues, so the socioeconomic issues, employment, housing, insurance, caregiver concerns, um, smoking, things like alcohol use and illicit drug use. And this is just an example of the algorithm. Um, so you had levels of glycemic control at that at that point. Um, adequate was less than eight. Of course, now it's less than seven or even lower. If you, um, you know, if you say. Um, so say um, that we would assess glycemic control at the baseline, and then take action based on the level. So for example, if the care uh, the control was adequate, you reinforce self-care, date initial, and then reassess. If it was considered to be suboptimal, the first point of contact would be um, to send a letter or email the primary care physician um, and initiate protocols for uh, intervention action protocols for the patient, which I'll show you. Um, and then the person would date an initial and then reassess again in one month. Um, so the intervention action plans were based on using the pre-seed proceed model. Um, they guided the interventions, so they were dealing with more of the self-care behavior, so nutrition, physical activity, medication adherence, appointment adherence, foot care, um, and socioeconomic issues, and they served as documentation tools. So this is an example. So the pre-seed proceed model, I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, it's one of the behavioral models, but it focuses on predisposing factors such as poor knowledge, um, enabling factors such as, um, you know, this is for physical activity, access, lack of access to um, a safe place to exercise, and then reinforcing factors, you know, is the family supportive, is the provider supportive. So the interventionist would assess where the participant was in this. So, you know, if they said, okay, you know, I just can't get away from my family to, to exercise, then that's the place that the um, that the interventionist would intervene. So, you know, it wasn't a one-size-fit-all type of thing. Okay, so what was culturally tailored? Um, I'm always asked this question. Um, we, we had feedback from focus groups and in-depth interviews from our phase one to try to get a feel for what people liked and what they didn't like. Um, we did have a predominantly African-American staff. Now, it was very hard to um, keep an African-American nurse on staff um, because research uh, salaries are so much lower than what they can go out and make clinically. So, um, so we did not always have an African-American nurse, but certainly our community health workers were. Could you clarify who was doing the medication dose adjustment? Yes, the primary physician. This was not, this is ancillary care. So the primary care physician was still responsible. The whole idea of this is the primary care physician does not have time to do a lot of things. K 
can these ancillary health providers help out with some of the things that either the physician's not trained in, some of the, you know, um, nutrition or, or, you know, education types of things, and the things that the physician does not have time to do. Now, um, my, my mentor was, you know, kind of the study doc, so could recommend certain things, you know, and, and they would sit down with the nurse and, and discuss those things, so they could recommend things, but could not do anything about the medication. And that's one of the things um, that we did not get a chance to do is we collected meds, baseline, follow-up, chart review, and we have all that data, but we weren't, you know, we ran out of time and money to look at whether the dosages decreased, increased, didn't change at all. Okay. Um, predominantly African-American staff, culturally tailored um, intervention materials, and then this, this intervention action plan, this pre-seed-proceed that goes based on the context. So wherever the participant is, that's where um, the intervention is put in. Any questions about the intervention before I go on to the results? Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit about the population. Um, I have stratified by minimal intervention group, intensive intervention group to show the balance. You can focus here on the total study group. Um, we were mostly female, on average, um, 58 years, on average high school education. Um, this is this is the thing that will shock particularly New Yorkers. 35% of people living less than $7,500 per year. And this is family income. So, I mean, that's unfathomable anywhere, but in New York, I mean, you can't even think about that. Um, everybody had insurance um, because we got people from their clinics. So some people were incapitated, some were fee-for-service. These were mostly the Medicare people. Um, about a third were married. Okay, when we looked at healthcare utilization, we were really surprised by this. So, have you had diabetes education ever before the study? Only 4% of people said they had diabetes education. Now these are people who on average had um, 10 years on average diagnosed, you know, um, mean duration. So there's no excuse for only 4% having some type of diabetes education. Um, with respect to their utilization, their nutritionist visits, ophthalmologists, podiatrists, these were um, comparable to national numbers. Um, people were going to their doctor uh, on average five, five times per year. Um, and we were shocked about this too. Greater than one ER visit, 39% of people had gone to the ER at least once. Um, in our power calculations, we estimated that 25% of people would go in. So there was a lot of, um, you know, I don't know if they were going for urgent care, if they weren't, um, um, in continuity with their care so that if they had a problem they would go to the ER, but a lot of ER use. Okay, and then um, with, with regard to the clinical parameters, um, half had a uh, family history of diabetes, uh, BMI on average 35, so population significantly overweight, um, but clin clinical parameters not too bad. Systolic blood pressure, um, on average 137, um, diastolic 80, A1C, mean of 7.9, um, and HDL. So these were all people who had a mean duration of about 10 years, but had no 
no complications of diabetes. Okay, so at 24 months, um, we had a follow-up rate of 93%, which is awesome. We had all different types of ways to find out where people were. Um, um, the investigators and mentors on this project, they've been working in East Baltimore for 30 years, so they really know, have, have a connection to the community. They know how to, to find people. Um, and, um, you know, some completers had, there were some differences, but no differences um, by intervention group, except that the, um, the intervention group was slightly older. <clears throat> okay, so what do we see? Change in health behaviors over 24 months. So this is the intensive group. Um, they had significant reduction in meat consumption. That's just one component of this dietary assessment. Um, they were more likely to monitor their blood glucose, um, odds ratio of 1.9, um, and they were more likely to perceive blood sugars in the target range. So you know the whole idea of what should your ideal blood sugar be uh, by the end of the intervention. They were more often. Um, in, on target with these um, as recommended by the ADA. Excuse me. Yes. Are these uh, comparison between the groups or comparison between groups? They're comparison between groups. They're, they're comparison between groups. So they are changes over time and then differences between the intervention groups. Okay. This is because this one was a dichotomous, they, I'm using odds ratios just for these, but most of them are mean changes and difference between the control group and intervention. Were there, were there significant changes in both groups from baseline level? Yeah, yeah. So there was a study effect, yeah. but greater in the Yeah, yeah, and I'm always asked that, and I have to admit that I never present the data like that because as an epibod, I only care about what the intervention is doing. But yeah, it's useful to look at within group changes as well. In the paper, I present within group. Okay. Um, but we didn't see any differences in physical activity, smoking, or foot care. Um, I did just say smoking rates. I don't think I showed those, but um, pretty low um, smoking rates. These are mostly older African-American women. Um, but we didn't see um, any differences. Okay, um, looking at changes in health-related quality of life. Um, so most of you are familiar with the SF36 scale, the short form 36 I see some heads nodding, um, but it's a scale that has eight different dimensions, you know, physical dimensions, um, um, global health, and so forth. We saw improvements in role functioning physical, so that's the extent to which physical health interferes with work or daily activities, um, and role functioning emotional, the extent to which emotional health interferes with work um, or daily activities, and those were um, an increase in that. Um, but we didn't see differences by, um, in depressive symptoms. Now, this, this finding was important for a couple of reasons. We have, um, as an investigator, a psychologist, and what she interprets is over time, particularly people with chronic illnesses, quality of life goes down. So to not see declines in quality of life is just good, but to see some improvements in quality of life, now these aren't the physical functioning, you know, scales of the quality of life, but to see some increases is actually a positive thing. Um, and if you look at the types of um, improvements that we saw, 
I think a lot of those can be contributed more to the community health worker type of role because the role that they had was trying to help them navigate a lot of these issues. And again, those are differences between groups. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Change over time and differences between the groups. Okay. So A1C, um, over 24 months. Overall study, no decline in A1C. Um, we split the data out looking at the intensity of intervention. So this is people who had a uh, um, substantial number of visits with the community health worker and the nurse. Um, more community health workers, some nurse, more nurse, some community health workers, low um, visits for all. Um, and the people who had more intense um, intervention had significant declines in A1C. And so, you know, this is a situation where it's one of those things where the people who got more attention were the people who needed more attention, you know, attention. So if people were, you know, pretty well controlled, then they got a visit, they got some basic education, and they went on with their lives. If they were um, out of control, then they got constant follow-up, you know, at every month and telephone call, calls and so forth. So this result makes complete sense to us that, that we would see better declines with more intensity. Um, when you look at ER visits, um, overall we saw a significant decline. These are rate ratios comparing the intensive to the minimal. So this is a rate ratio of 0.8, which means the, intervent the intensive intervention less likely to go to the ER. And this is the result for 24 months. Okay, so that's overall. When you look at the high um, intensity of our intervention, you see even stronger associations. So, you know, if you had lots of visits with the community health worker and the nurse, um, you were even less likely to go to the ER. Sorry, sorry to keep popping on the same question, but this is a little more complicated to understand. The overall, you're looking at intensive versus not intensive. Yeah. Then you're breaking out subgroups of intensive versus the old, versus the okay. high and non-intensive group? Of the intervention group. So so let me let me explain. This is the main result. Right. So if you didn't if you took anything from this, you can take the intensive group more likely than the uh, minimal group. This is our on treatment analysis. So it's splitting the people in the intervention group. Okay. and saying, okay, if you were in the intervention group and you got more visits so from our interventionist. That's, that's from base, well, so where is that, how do you get the rate? The rate there is high, high CHW and high NCM versus what? Versus no, versus less intense, so low, you know. That's all within the intensity. Exactly, intensity. exactly. Okay. So that's what we call on treatment. So we're taking our intervention group and saying who, you know, splitting them up by how many visits they got within the intervention and saying if you got more attention, um, positive or negative, from our intervention interventionist, did you do better? Yes? So for both of these slides, if I'm understanding this correctly, it doesn't seem that the addition of intense nursing to your community health workers has any difference, which actually I wouldn't expect. Both are your A1Cs and this. So what was your right. thought So yeah, that's unexpected. And we found that in the first study too. So if you... Um, I don't want to go back all those slides, but when we had one, uh, a one intervention that had nursing intervention and the community health worker, those declines were the same. And we totally did not expect that because we expected the nursing declines to be much 
stronger. Exactly. And I, and I think that, you know, um, you know, we could talk about this for a long time today, but um, the community health worker role in that community, I think, was very important. And I know, you know, I'm not um, part of the, you know, intervention team. You know, I'm more of the outcomes team because I'm interested in the, the research and the design. Um, but I know I would talk to staff, and staff would give me, you know, little indications that the patients would say things to them that they were not saying to the nurse, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and withholding information. And so, so there was something about that role. And, um, you know, we can talk more about just about um, cultural differences because, you know, within African-American communities, the trust within the community is very important because historically there's been a lot of discrimination, there's been a lot of negative things happening outside of the community, so that trust within the community. And, you know, we've been applying these models to some other communities. There's been a lot in Latino um, um, populations. The role of the community health workers are a little different, but they're still very successful. Um, we were translating to a Korean-American um, population in Baltimore and not as, um, as successful because they wanted more of the expert advice and they wanted, you know, so it just goes to show that with different populations how different things work. Yeah. What's the difference between the number of visits? It sounds like the community health worker was empowered to go back a lot of times. So yeah. Could you break it down by number of contacts? Yeah, low, low was less than... The nurse isn't that a structured intervention where the nurse goes one time? Yeah, one time across the board. But if, if necessary, they'll see people as many times as they need to see them. Yeah. So low, um, I think, was on average less than two visits for each. You know, less, th less than one for nurse, less than two for community health workers. These could be, I could, you know, I can't tell you what the average is, but it could be a lot. Yes. Can I ask you a question? Did the nurse was the nurse primarily over the telephone in the clinic? Is that what you're saying, or she made a field visit as well? She saw people in the clinic. Uh, yeah, either as part of their regular visits or met them separately at the clinic. So it was you know at least the one year face to face, okay. and as necessary, however many times. I, I, I've been a public health nurse for many years in East Baltimore, Newark, uh, uh, Harlem. Uh, did you ever think to use the um, possibly the, the result is possibly the result of that is a very different dynamic when you go and provide care into someone's home yeah. versus who it is. Yeah. I mean, you're ready to use a nurse as, as the community health worker as well. Do you know what I mean? Like the nurse piece being the home piece? Yeah. We, that wasn't what we were looking at. I think there's interest, you know, there could be very interesting results with that. That was not what we were looking at. But I do want to speak to that point. Um, of course, when somebody's coming to you, that's also going to be more accepted. You know, but I think it's the combination of, yeah, they're coming to you, so, you know, that's easier for you. But it's a combination of they're coming to you and they're interacting with your family, they're there, and it's a, you know, it's a very different um, dynamic. And these are people who are from the community. So if, if somebody says they have a problem, they say, oh, I know, <laughs> you know, that this community center offers this program over here, and, and Baltimore's much smaller than New York, so... You know, people, they don't connect. Yeah. Is there a question over here somewhere? No? Okay. And so these are good questions. Um, and so hospitalization, similar result, but we did, it was not significant. So a lower rate ratio, so this is overall, we could just focus here, 
but not significant. And we think that's because, you know, if people really needed to be hospitalized, they needed to be hospitalized. You know, there wasn't much we could do in our intervention. With, with the ER visits, I think connecting them to care better, you know, getting self-management issues um, more under control was, was very helpful. Okay, so the, the, um, we have whole cost-effectiveness data um, on the cost of the intervention. Um, unfortunately, because I left, um, we didn't get a chance to, to finish this. So, you know, I hope that one day I can um, do the full cost-effectiveness analysis. Um, but it wasn't a priority because I was the one spearheading all of this. Um, so on average for personnel, this is our poor man's version, 600000 for personnel, um, 5000 for phones, mailings, supplies, total over 30 months, 639 approximately, um, $182,000 a year, $600 per patient per year. So does that sound good for, you know, a lot of you clinically working? How does that sound? What'd you say? It's pretty good. I was just going to ask a quick question about, um, the, do you have the rate of doctor visits, like for the high intensity nursing and did, were they going back to the physician, the PCP, yeah. more often yeah. because the people were recommending that they, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we and have, we have their self-report, yeah, we have their self-report, but then we also have their administrative data. So we have most of the administrative data, but the, the self-report. So, you know, so getting to this bottom line, 680 per patient per year, that wasn't good for the managed care. They want less than that. They don't want to break even. <laughs> they, don't, they certainly don't want to spend anything. They definitely don't want to break even. They want to save <laughs> money in order to do something. Yes. But um, from capitation, they would be paying for the, for the ER visit, which I would think would be more than $680. Yes, yes. and so that's the cost effectiveness piece that, you know, Right. Like Intuitively, and then they were prompted to go to the doctor. Right. So, yeah, so intuitively, cost, if he's capitated, how much does it cost to yeah. see the patient? Yeah, so intuitively, we think it's cost effective. We definitely think it's cost effective because of the ER, um, but we haven't been able to do the, the full analyses. And I mentioned earlier the, the medication dosage analysis, the analysis that we wanted to do. Okay, so we have just a couple more minutes. Um, um, so, you know, conclusions are we, we were able to recruit and retain, um, which was no easy feat. Um, improvements in quality of life, um, we reduced ER visits. This result lasted over 36 months. Um, but it wasn't mediated by the clinical parameters. So, you know, the A1Cs and all of that, they weren't, you know, huge declines in A1C. Um, if you remember, the population started at 7.9, um, so there were a lot of people that were already in control. And I can say there were secular trends from the first phase to the second phase. The first phase, they were at like 8.8 .8 on average, and then 7.9. So, you know, you see the changes in the, in the clinic populations, period, um, over this time period. Okay, so what I've been interested in is trying to translate um, this work. And so... Um, we had started conversations with managed care organization, um, but with the cost effectiveness and all of that, we couldn't get it implemented um, within one of these large, we were talking to these large disease management companies because, you know, just put it in context. 
Um, I'd say 10 years ago, nobody wanted to take care of these patients. Now there are all these incentives and requirements to figure out how to take care of patients in a cost-effective way. So now they want programs. They want, you know, how can we um, do it effectively? Um, but within the managed care organization of Baltimore, I can say that they have implemented community health workers as part of their um, standard of care. And in Maryland, they're very active. They have. Maryland um, Community Outwork, Outreach Workers Association, you know, they have a lot of um, push, and I'm not sure, you know, somebody else could speak to the climate in New York, um, but they have been implemented in that particular system. So anyway, um, we want to use data from, um, from what you are doing in your clinical practice to, um, and feed it back to, to, to uh, develop new science and so forth. It's a feedback loop both ways. Um, I have been trying to um, outline aspects of that study that could be translated to different settings. There's a framework called the REAIM framework, um, which looks at reach, adoption, effectiveness, implementation, and maintenance. Um, and we kind of put our study into each one of these um, different categories to um, give people who want to replicate in practice settings ideas on what they can do. Um, there's been a couple of, um, you know, briefs and editorials written on this. I didn't even know this was being written, but they say, you know, these researchers um, tested this model, and this model is promising. This is from um, a nursing journal. Um, we've been included in a number of different systematic reviews. These reviews, you know, particularly under this one, and um, this one by um, Robert Wood Johnson to try to establish best practices um, overall and especially in disadvantaged groups um, were included in Diabetes in Black America um, as one of the strategies to prevent um, complications. This book came out in 2010. Okay, so I'm just to tell you just two, two minutes and then I'll take any other questions about what I'm trying to do now to translate this. Um, I mentioned that um, we're doing a position statement for the Endocrine Society. Um, one of my colleagues um, is an endocrinologist, and she invited people with different disease interests, disease-specific expertise, to be a part of that statement, and then a couple of us who are in disparities research to, um, to be a part of that. So we're working on that now as we speak. It's going to come out um, for the meeting in, um, it's in June, so if any of you want in that, there'll be a presentation on that. Um, I've been an active um, uh, member of the African American Collaborative Obesity Research Network. It's a network of researchers um, um, started by um, Shariki Kumanika, who has been looking at these issues for um, a couple of decades. And it's a group, um, it started out with African American researchers, and now it's people who are just interested in the topic. Um, to, you know, we do a conference every other year. Um, to try to just work out these issues because there's so many complex issues that we need to um, deal with in our studies. Um, our vision is um, envisioning healthy weight, freedom from obesity-related health problems, and high quality of life for African-American youth, adults, and elders. Um, and a couple of academic things that we've done out of that group, we, um, we participated um, in the think obesity think tank for NIH. Um, it was a meeting that came together to, to, to look at the, the state of the science 
um, in obesity. And what we did is we came up with our, they came up with recommendations and came up with a report. We came up with our recommendations um, that what came along with those, those recommendations for Af specifically for African Americans. Um, I'm not going to go over that, but you know, we were talking more about looking at social environmental context, um, you know, trying to understand more of the qualitative research. We don't value qualitative research as much, but it's important for understanding what we need to study in more quantitative research um, studies, and then supporting more um, fellowships and training for people to do this type of work. So if you're interested in that, that's in um, Now Obesity. Um, we also wrote an article about expanding the obesity paradigm, um, and this framework, um, which has become um, pretty popular in this setting, um, is trying to say that we need to basically expand our knowledge domain. So, you know, we're all interested in this energy balance, but can we talk about some of the historical and social contexts that have influenced uh, behaviors over time? Um, can we talk about the physical and economic environments? You know, so I was studying a lot of the built environment in Baltimore. You could go a mile with a corner store with nothing fresh, you know, there. You really can. Here you can walk, you know, three in, the, in one block, you have six stores. So, you know, can we think about that? Um, and then the cultural and psychosocial processes. Um, and what it also does is talks about the research lenses that we look at research from. So, you know, there are researchers in general community, African-American researchers, and then African-Americans who are being researched. And each one of these has their own unique take on, on this problem. So that we need to be including all of these people. This is kind of a, a push for community, more community involvement, a push for more African-American re researcher involvement um, in research. And so this is my last slide. These are my two little ones. This is, this is Amira and Ava Webb. And um, Amira's almost three, Ava's um, 16 months. And I put this up just to, just to say a decade, well, 15 years or a decade later after doing you know, this research, my perspective on it is all a little different. And I have a much more balanced perspective now on what we're asking people to do um, when we're, you know, asking them to do all of these things and how they can actually do it in the context of family and, and all kinds of issues. So I think now when we do the next study with one of you, you know, my perspective is going to be a little different on things. Thank you. Related to health care. The event of how, many, how easy it is to obtain health care, not just a matter of you know, um, you know, you know, all, the, all the sort of biology that underlies that. Is yeah. This conflict of other disparities in health care availability by yeah, so I mean, the studies that I was doing, that was when I was at CDC, which is a little older, and yeah, so then that looks at the country, because most of the work that I've been doing is in settings where people have care. Now, they may have Medicaid, which means they're not, you know, um, wealthy or anything, they don't have, may not have jobs or private insurance, but at least they have a source of care. When we look at the national data, 
we're including people who have, who don't have care. Um, and so then we see, those were the numbers that I presented um, a little earlier, we see that a lot of people don't have care. And even when they do, you know, now we have all these co-pays and different, you know, co-insurance and so forth. Do people not access care because they can't afford all the extras, you know, or afford the medicines? But does that mean that does the lack of access to care affect the frequency of the disease? I think it would be more of an issue for the complications afterwards. So the development is more related to, um, you know, rates of overweight and obesity, which is complex with all these food issues and physical activity so issues. So there's no evidence that, that access to health care early before the disease itself develops delays or prevents the onset of disease. Someone's saying, listen, you're, you're gaining too much weight, you have a family history of diabetes, you should start doing something now. It doesn't seem to make a difference. I'm not, a, I'm not aware of those type of studies. Those studies would be very hard, particularly with incident diabetes. People are saying that to patients in the office. I'm not aware that even from people with good health care that that conversation is happening with any great problems. Yeah. yeah, but the studies are designed to look, you know, at at risk for, you know, for those types of things, but there could be some out there that I don't know about. Any last? Yes, um, Have you, the physicians who participated, they were hospital-based or you have physicians from the community? Um, they're all, the, the clinics are owned by the hospital, but they're clinic communities. So they're basically outpatient um, physicians. So like one of the the clinics was the Johns Hopkins Outpatient Center, which is right there near the hospital. And so that gets more of the higher SES. There were two like higher SES clinics. Um, one um, housed a lot of retired military people. But then there were a couple, you know, in East Baltimore that really had more of an underserved population. So the physicians were technically employed by Hopkins, so they could have had appointments elsewhere, but they were mostly set, outpatients set in those places. Because it seems that we're going to have to engage a lot of community physicians yes. in order to achieve this work. Yes. There is a lot that needs to be done. Yes, I completely agree. And then with, with New York, the hospital systems are so, you know, so I'm talking about a, a system where these are spread out throughout the city and they're all coming back to a, one system. Whereas we're talking about like completely different systems between these different hospitals, and we're not talking about a huge geographic area, you know. So um, I'm hearing that there's been a lot of effort to try to um, uh, work with the medical data here and try to, you know, do those types of things so we can get a little better handle on on some of those issues. Thank you very much. Thank you.